You are listening to a panel discussion about Log 31, New Ancients. Produced for Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Why has history become so important to look at again? History is there, and nobody uh, has talked too much about it for a while. The current system is bankrupt in terms of both its interest as an intellectual project for, for us, um, but also it wasn't providing a means of bridging between a kind of internal <laughs> discipline and other histories, cultural, political, social histories that were outside of architecture. And so I think everybody at this table is it, as is much, quote, interested in history, but probably more interested in the idea of newness and from where does newness come. I think a lot of what you see in this issue is works that are sort of cutting sideways at time or, or working with multiple temporalities or, or thinking mm -hmm. about our relationship to time in, in different um, sort of non-linear ways. And then I think it's a, um, it's a question of architecture's engagement in sort of reality as well. Um, and it, and architecture is an intellectual project that I felt like, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I just got the sense that there has to be more than the digital project. In the following discussion on the topic of Log 31, New Ancients, guest edited by Dora Epstein-Jones and Bryony Roberts, was held on July 10th, 2014. The discussion was between Bryony Roberts, Dora Epstein-Jones, Jorge Oteo Paelos, Ötzi Grau, Christina Goberna, and Matt Roman, and it was moderated by Cynthia Davidson. The discussion engages why it is that history seems to be returning to the fore on the architectural agenda, what it means now in difference to its excessive role in the period of architecture's own history, often labelled postmodern, and in what ways history might play a new role in the further development of the discipline and of architectural practice. Uh, so, Dora uh -huh. and Bryony, I don't want to sort of uh, fetishize this title, New Ancients, or make too much out of it, but how did you conceive of this as a sort of moniker for this issue? What, did, what does it mean to you? Well, it came partly from an analogy and recognizing an analogic moment, if you will, between the debates between the ancients and the moderns and the Carrel uh, of the French Academy and uh, a shift or a perceptible sort of discussion today between the um, digital, if you will, culture, although most of us are digital, but the kind of contemporary culture of a proliferating digital formalism um, versus uh, an interest perhaps in tracking or understanding intellectual lineages and then using those intellectual lineages in a new way. And so there's a kind of analogy, therefore, between the moderns and, and, and the ancients. And, um, but the ancient ancients seemed, uh, 
I think you say it well in your in in your essay that the ancient ancients um, uh, seemed uh, too sort of conservative and and so in a way we were uh, reprising the sensibility of a historic kind of attention, but um, certainly not with any of the uh, um, how shall we say with. We were, we were reprising it, uh, but without any of the kind of classical integrity or uh, sense of truth-making that the original ancients would have had, I think. And, well, Brian, you should talk, you, your essay, Beyond the Corral, I think really hits it. Yeah, so we were, um, we were interested in also breaking down the sort of stereotype of the ancients versus the moderns that, um, that actually, uh, so, Claude Perrault and Francois Blondel, who were staging this fight in the French Academy, um, they were seen as antagonizing tradition and modernity. Um, but I talk about in my article, based on this scholarship from um, Anthony Garbino, that you know they were both scientists and they were both invested in classicism. And so it's actually a way of looking at a moment in history where um, technology, new technology and historical knowledge were going hand in hand. Um, so part of what we're interested in is saying that um, we can no longer just look at ancients um, sort of in opposition to um, technology or modernity, but what does it mean to be a new ancient that is um, just as skilled in these uh, more recent kinds of uh, expertise, but um, can bring a kind of larger uh, disciplinary knowledge, but also a, a sort of knowledge of the humanities, which was so important to Francois Blondel um, in, in addressing the architectural problems. I think also the, the title is oxymoronic. And um, it's oxymoronic precisely because I think most of us who are sitting here were raised in a contemporary architectural setting, a kind of contemporary milieu that's been around maybe since 1995. I, I peg it as somehow occurring with the Deleuze issue of any, that this contemporary milieu, I think, really is the, is, is, is a, might have a starting point. Most of us became part of architectural culture in this contemporary setting. And in this contemporary setting, there's been a casting, for better or for worse, between the old and the new, that there is you know, um, an emphasis on innovation and technology as being something that is new and different for the sake of newness. And that that is not the same as whatever was old prior. And I think, though, that maybe what happened was that we of this next generation decided that, or had learned our Deleuzian lessons too well, and have seen um, that, uh, that, that the bifurcation and the separation between old and new was itself not productive. And so the many among us, you know, and I, I think your Dictionary of Received Ideas is a really interesting example of this as well. Many, many among us, and we were sort of witnessing a group of, of people our, our age, and so 
who were um, not just eliding, but kind of fruitfully eliding the past and the present as a way not just of getting past this old new dichotomy, but as Hannah Arendt would describe it, as creating a, um, making a creative tension out of the two coming together. And so the oxymoronic title, New Ancients, is meant to create that same tension and is therefore <coughs> meant to become a creative source in itself. But I think we're also very careful not to call it the New Ancients, as if it's some sort of unified mm -hmm. and cohesive group, um, but rather to suggest that there is this tension that can occur and, um, and that there are a number of us here that are working on this in some, in, you know, in some way. And uh, that's fairly open-ended. Jorge, are you comfortable with this title? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, love it. I think it's right. Um, uh, when Bryani told me the, the title of the issue, I thought it was brilliant. Um, it made me think of the, the, I mean, I think a very simple um, sort of thing, which is that ancient at a certain point meant contemporary, you know, that um, but the, in the late sort of Gothic, when somebody, you know, when you have the beginning of the Renaissance and people are talking about let's make ancient buildings, mm -hmm. it really meant let's, what we let's today would say, new. let's make some contemporary new. radical stuff and forget that old Gothic material. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, that, so for me it was, what is the new ancient sort of in opposition to? And, you know, we've had the, 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 the rubric the, the, of, of the modern, and then, you know, especially in contemporary art, people started saying, well, that doesn't really reflect what we are today, so we are contemporary artists, right? And so the contemporaries sort of come to signify now and I think it's very interesting to, to put the New Ancients as, as, the, as a possible sort of periodization or, 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 or name for what it is to be alive today, you know, and to create today. So I, I just think as a, as a sort of um, uh, provocation um, that, that, that maybe the contemporary doesn't quite, you know, reflect our conditions of, of production you know, the idea that we are with our time, mm -hmm. you know, because we, I think a lot of what you see in this issue is works that are sort of cutting sideways at time or, or working with multiple temporalities or, or thinking mm -hmm. about our relationship to time in, in different um, sort of nonlinear ways. Uh, so I, I think it's great. I mean, I think it's a, but who knows what it, what it is. I mean, if this is sort of an indication, but it certainly has brought, brought us all into dialogue, which that's, that in itself is a really interesting thing. Yeah, if I could just add to that, I think um, calling it a, a form of production is really, um, is really appropriate because I think the thing that connects these, these different kinds of practices and it's a really big range. It's not meant to say that this is one movement, this is one way of working, but we were trying to sample this incredible variety of people who were asking the question of how, the, you know, how current practices can relate to history. Um, that I think the form of production is, is really um, this way of saying that it's not about the old and the new or the past and the present, 
but to actually um, take from the past and through this process of appropriation and transformation or even copying can actually make a third thing that gets beyond this sort of duality. Um, and I think the copy, the way that Ertzi and Christina talk about it is like one of the best encapsulations of that to say that that um, can even can even threaten to be a replacement of the original um, because it's throwing ideas of authenticity sort of out the window and that's very current also for preservation discourse. So I think getting to people who are dealing with you know, representation or built work that's copying or preservation was sort of the goal, how, the, how they're all trying to make a third thing out of these historical sources. I, I don't want to pick up on words, <laughs> on terms, but I can't help it. Um, because one of the, when you first proposed this, you proposed it in two ways. One, new ancients, and one, new ancients in conversation with, I think you called it moderns. moderns. And I suggested it would be more powerful simply to try to see what new ancients meant rather than putting it into some sort of dialectic or oppositional relationship. Any regrets you didn't go that other way? No. Not at all. <laughs> you know, we proposed that because that's what we had talked to you about over dinner. Right. And we thought, oh, well, maybe that's what she was expecting. So we should. <laughs> but we didn't want to but, really do that. No, because I think that it, it, but it comes back to this practices question, which was that um, just saying, okay, well, if we're going to, if we're going to try to put a net or some membrane around this, you know, new ancients what group would this comprise? Because it seems that the then therefore moderns are just so well-defined already. Lots of discourse, lots of their own, you know, um, uh, uh, pamphlets, papers, websites, you know, QR codes, da-da-da-da. And, um, and, and, for, for us, it was hard enough to even say what's the corral around this phenomena of new ancients. And I think that, if anything, there seems to be an interesting, not just slicing across time, but also slicing across practices, where historians are acting as, you know, fiction writers or, you know, retelling narratives or acting as critics. Critics are becoming more like, you know, uh, uh, practitioners, people who draw are writing essays, you know, and there's this little sort of cross-disciplinary, you know, confluence that's happening just alone in, under this title, if, if we accept it as new ancients. It's difficult enough. And I think that's a my best answer to no, you know, I, I regret nothing is uh, the, that um, uh, I, I would hate for, if you will, the moderns to be so beautifully well-defined and the new agents come flopping along with all of these various cross-currents. And instead now this thing can stand in, it, in its own way and allow those cross-currents to go ahead and, and create a discourse that, that, that is independent and not oppositional. Well, in your joint editorial, uh, you say that um, you had long been warned that history was problematic mm -hmm. and to be avoided at all costs. Mm -hmm. So what changed 
don't don't tell me about Deleuze. What, <laughs> what, what? It was your fault. <laughs> what? No, I can blame that on John Reichman. Uh, uh, what? And and how is is that different from the sort of modernism's rejection of history? If if we want to look back just a little bit, uh, why has history become so? important to look at, again, for this assembled group? Or maybe you were all always interested in it, or, or looking back at other models. I mean, there's always precedent in architecture, right? I mean, there are those who say precedent is unnecessary. Uh, I would imagine this group here would say precedent has some kind of role. Yes. A varying degrees of importance, but some kind of role, yes? Absolutely. Okay. Um, so when did that become more important here? What, what tipped it? Is, it? is it this dominance of computation where science and, and computation and algorithms well, seems to be yeah. data is driving architecture rather than architecture driving data? or some sort of variation on that? I think a reaction that? to that. Now, I mean, the, 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 for me, the bald-faced truth is that, the, that, you know, in 1999, there was an issue of JAE that had um, Sylvia Levin's theory into history and Mark Yarzenbeck's discussion and of, of, of history. And all of those, the discussion of that um, issue was centered on the placelessness that architectural history had within the discipline of architecture. And that architectural history had been, you know, sort of outsourced to art history and uh, had occupied or historic, I mean, I talk about a dead discourse. Historic, we, I get turned around and ask you the same thing. Why historic preservation now, right? You know, what was the tipping point? And, um, and I think that, that uh, by the beginning of this century, there was a kind of homelessness of, of the place of history within, within architecture, and certainly of historiography, that historiography, so, it, and it was incredibly symptomatic in the PhD programs that, you know, are training critics and not historians, or, you know, I mean, the kind of uh, um, discussions that were happening around the possibility or impossibility of the architectural PhD and who, who was the architectural PhD. And um, for me, the tipping point of, you know, history is okay again um, came kind of from two directions at once, but I think the first direction it came from was from the uh, formal, you know, the kind of form-making explorations that started to look out more and more outside of the digital realm and started to look toward some of the, say, latent formalisms in, you know, and geometries in classical and classicizing architecture. Once that door opens, <laughs> then it all, it, it, it starts to suggest, I think, more globally, History might be okay. Syntactically, history might be okay. You know, as forms, as lines, as geometry, it might be okay. And I think once that door opened, at least in my mind, once that door opened, it became a, like a little bit better, a little bit better. That's the tipping point. 
right? So when I look at something like animate form and we're celebrating the, say, uh, you know, blobbiness of the blob and the technological mastery, say, of the blob, there's also a whole first chapter of animate form on, on uh, Boromini, right? You know, and so there's a point where this, I, I think, leaks into a discussion of form making more and more and more until eventually it has to get, you know, reconciled. But whether or not there was a specific issue or galvanizing. Yeah, but but Greg just kind of disparages. He says sure that the yeah, he disparages that the Baroque and says that it, it is the antecedent of all the topologies that we're interested in is sort of misguided, right? And, and in fact, kind of this thing is a little bit of an answer to uh, you mean your drawing the drawing and the, tran the transformational kind of analysis is a a little bit of a reaction to actually that first part of animate form when he kind of does I don't believe that he gives the broken of credit as the antecedent for this kind of way of thinking in fact this thing is it's trying to demonstrate the suppleness of the assembly of discrete parts as opposed to you know the gooiness of nerve curves, as Bryony says in her, the sloppy modulation of nerve curves or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. I think also, though, it's important to, um, I think it's happening on multiple levels, and that's what's key, is that, so this is a geometric question, partly, right? And then I think it's a, um, it's a question of architecture's engagement in sort of reality as well, um, and, it, and architecture is an intellectual project that I felt like, um, you know, when I was in grad school, I just got the sense that there has to be more than the digital project. Like, there has to be more. And actually, Jorge taught this seminar at Princeton when I was there, and it was like, it was like this instant self-help group for all these people who were hungry for something more. And, and honestly, that was a tipping point for, I mean, everyone I know who was in that class has gone on to work on history. And they're designers. And, and it, was, it was like this sense of the current system is bankrupt in terms of both its interest as an intellectual project for, for us, um, but also, you know, it was, it wasn't providing a means of bridging between a kind of internal discipline and, you know, other other histories, cultural, political, social histories that were outside of architecture. So I think, I think the range within the issue is, you know, people who were who were pushed to that breaking point for um, formal problems, for you know, political problems, for intellectual problems, and there is like a bunch of different motivations in that.
there is no way to actually construct a messages now those means of production. You know, like seriously, right now you teach in any grad school, as all of us do, and you know, students arrive knowing enough software in that probably, you know, to tell them that you're going to learn one more is not enough. And probably the 20 years ago was actually that, that was a project that will, was valid. You know, you're going to learn these tools and therefore you're going to produce something that's completely new. But like, well, I've been doing this thing for the last five years. Mm. You know, I will do something new that it will last too little. But history is there and nobody uh, has talked too much about it for a while. And actually you can find operating in a way as a PC does that if you find something really obscure that nobody has talked about it, you know, but and then sound like suddenly you're cool because nobody knows about that. And in a way, in a way, uh, that's what happens with a lot of the practitioners here that are operating in history in their way. And we do it in a way. I mean, I think all of us do it, you know, like it's a way to produce exceptionality. And the title is really good because you can read it uh, new ancients or you can read it as ancients are the new thing. You know, mm -hmm. like literally, it's called, your trends are described like that. Answers are the main thing. And so it's really, really interesting. But the other side of the question, of course, is the, um, is the proletarization of history. Mm -hmm. Is that actually the cycle of PZ coming out from graduate schools in the States has filled the uh, position for history and theory. And now, history and theory PhDs are asked to teach a student. And any kind of a Position that opens will require both things. You have to know how to teach history, but you have to be versed in the ancient art of the studio because you know that's what you have to do. You're not anymore historians. Historians are, you know, there are few, and they're already there. So the that kind of kind of double side of the, of this question actually opens up this fantastic discussion. That is, well, history cannot be. History and his studio, his studio cannot be separated anymore because from both sides it used to be completely separated and opposed and uh, articulated as different. And you know, in my PhD or other pieces, there was this thing that you want God's studio. <laughs> this is, you know, you become that kind of historian that you don't want to be. You know, like that's the kind you want to be a good historian if you're there. Um, suddenly disappears. But this, you know, because maybe they're like by chance, maybe like economical conditions, but the, it generates this interest in uh, space for production. That, that is probably the most interesting part. But actually, a lot of the production that is coming out from these things questioning uh, red lines that were not, you know, that you will never cross, that you will never get in there. And now these people that, you know, more limited for multiple reasons would step in there and say, how about these things? I mean, a lot of the articles there won't be possible 10 years ago because, you know, there are practitioners talking about things that, you know, were sacred for historians and nobody will be able to touch it. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. Well, but I think that the, um, the, the question is an interesting one to me because I, I don't see this ultimately as, you know, anti-digital. Mm -hmm. You know, as if there were a kind of digital project that came with a contemporary mood and that therefore, you know, and was uh, intellectually vacuous. I don't see that as a, at all. Um, as a matter of fact, what I see is I see a further refinement of the idea of innovation and where invention and innovation comes from, as well as a greater disciplinarity across the board. So that when you talk to people who are working in what I would call even the most sort of 
abstruse and avant ways of, of, of creating form, I think they'll still describe themselves as disciplinary at this point. And so I think also the tipping point might have to do with a moment in which the digital project and all of the academic settings had to reconcile itself to a larger discipline of architecture and try to understand itself within the role of a larger discipline of architecture, ask where do new ideas come from, and make that idea more refined and more nuanced. And I think in some ways innovation comes from really mechanical means, like constant mechanical innovation as I refer to, as we refer to in the, in, in, in the introduction. But I think that there's also an argument that could be made that is, is uh, as well a disciplinary, I think a very strong disciplinary tether that suggests that innovation comes from the very clear tracing of the lineage with a great deal of intellectual rigor or the very clear, say, following of the rule or the constraint such that the rule or the constraint is actually productive of the new set of ideas or sensibilities. And so I think everybody at this table is it, as is much quote, interested in history, but probably more interested in the idea of newness and from where does newness come. And I think that, that I do, wouldn't see it, therefore, as oppositional to... I, actually, I'm not really interested in you. Uh, you're not, but you're not. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 because I, you know, I, I do think that there is a conflation between the word creativity and new. Uh, that for me is, is not that interesting. I'm, I'm, more, I'm interested in creativity, but, but in exploring new modes of creativity. You know, how can one be creative without actually, let's say, coming up with a new form? You know, is there such a thing as, as that sort of creativity? So, you know, for example, when I, when I restaged the photograph of Edgerton, you know, there is no new form, you know, in, in the end, right? There, the process is in a way exactly the same. Although it can't be because it's, you know, we're, yeah. But we discovered certain <laughs> things like the fact that the, 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 that the original had been flipped. Right. So the original is, is in a way already, you know, um, not original. Possibly a mistake. That's right. It's, it's, there's a, there, so there's, a, there's an interesting relationship there between the source and the, uh, you know, and the response. Um, that for me is, is uh, a mode of supplementation, you know, where, you know, like in a book where, it, like, let's say, once you read your introduction to this thing, your, your perspective on the whole thing is changed. You know, every article you read sort of, it ties into it somehow. If, you, if your introduction wasn't there, uh, supplementing the work, you know, so then, then there wouldn't be an issue. It would just be a series of articles. So. So I think that that's actually that's not true. Okay, well, you, but you see my drift. <laughs> what I'm making an analogy to text, which might be, uh, which we can talk about. But but uh, so anyway, that, I'm I, I'm interested in this idea. I'm not saying you know making new things is is in any way bad. I think they're great. I enjoy them. But my personal 
search is to try to look for a mode of, of creativity that doesn't require that as, as a sort of stamp of, of being creative. Well, whether you, you call know. it well, new Can or I ask not. Christina what yeah. she thinks? Because I'm interested if the copy is, is, is it creative? I mean, let's take these terms that Dora and Jorge were just using. Is the idea of the copy in your work creativity, newness, none of the above? I mean... Well, um, I think that actually one of the problems is uh, uh, the obsession with uh, innovation and with the new, for sure. No, in that, I completely agree with you, agree with you, say. Uh, actually, we use the past. I'm not sure if I should say that we use history. I think that would be a little trick. I would just play further, no? But we use the past uh, in order to avoid this newness or this uh, innovation. No? Because we think that uh, in the, the problem with innovation, the problem with the new, and it doesn't have to be necessarily new forms, it could be new arguments, new etc., is that it's uh, very rapidly absorbed by you know, the cultural market, let's say. You know? I mean, we could say many words, but, but I think that fits good. Um, so therefore, I mean, I think that we are very much interested in, in the answer or respond or contest um, questions that are on top of the table right away, I mean, right now. Uh, so very current issues that we think that have to be discussed in public, let's say. And in order to do so, we copy. So it's not only a copy, it's an holistic copy, a replica, as we, as we call it. And uh, these, uh, these issues are very recent. I mean, there are things that are in the newspapers or in, in architectural magazines or whatever. But uh, the copies could be something extremely recent as well. No? So I don't know. I, I, I mean, you were asking, you were asking uh, Jorge if he's comfortable with the, with the title. And I'm not sure if, I, if I'm very comfortable with the title. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not that I'm comfortable. I think that as a provocation, as you were saying as well, I think that it's great. But uh, I'm not sure if it's very accurate in our, in our mm. case. Yeah, I think, but I think that is the other thread running through the whole issue, which is this, this resistance to making new form. Like, yeah. that comes up over oh, yeah. and over and over again. Um, uh, I think it's a resistance that's both sort of political and economic, too. Um, but it also shifts the job of the creator to being one of, of reframing. And that is basically a conceptual art practice. And so that... It, it is, but that, that's actually... You know, we can call it new or we can call it some other name if it makes everybody feel more comfortable. But the idea, I think, is that really any of this, once you reproduce the other thing or reframe it in another way, you create some kind of space that occurs between the former thing and the latter thing. And it's that space that is either that space of creativity or that space of kind of an otherness that that thing occupies. And I'm perfectly happy to not call it a new thing, but it's cert but it but it, we cannot deny that it 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 feeds our sense of what it is that we do in the architectural world when we lead intellectual projects, whether we call it new innovation, uh, you know, let's. I mean, if I need a better word for it, you know, I well, can call if, it. If, you can, if we continue this road, it'll just be ancient. <laughs> 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 right. yeah, no. Well, it's it's in the air. I mean, I when as when we work on log, and I've said this to you before when we were talking about the magazine, uh, log observes the sort of current condition, and strange things seem to 
come together at three times a year without our waving any magic wands or sniffing out any truffle or anything. It just, things seem to coalesce in a way. And I never know if our readers, when they look at the magazine, see these coalescences. Because it's something that when we're working through a lot of stuff and making selections and putting in the magazine, same way that you went and selected some people and I suggested maybe you want to look at this person or that person, and, and, but it's largely your work, that you were reacting to something in the air, not just concrete production, but yeah. some sort of wind current mm -hmm. or current in the water. It's hard for me to say, you know, I've been sitting here thinking about, you know, Vic Hover, it looms kind of large in here, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Like the, and I'm thinking about myself here, and this is going to well, autobiographical, but Vic Hover to, to Roe, to Peter, to kind of, and by the way, this is my own little offshoot of that, to Scott and then to me. I have always, um, uh... I guess for me, history, actually, I don't know, as a designer, I'm not so aware of history. I mean, and for me, the kind of, just the object, in this case of San Carlo, is a kind of primary historical document, of which this is, you know, one interpretation, obviously. You know, I spent a lot of time looking at this thing, dissecting it, pulling it apart, doing the close readings, looking at so many various, probably, I'm not joking, 50 different kind of narratives for which this thing could go, you know, and, um, it could have been another one besides this one. It's not, it's a secondary, it's a secondary document of interpretation about this. Brian, thing. Why, why did you guys decide this should be on the cover? San Carlo Cameron's, we, there's no postcard in this issue for those of you who know log, it's postcards. Instead we have San Carlo on the cover. Why did you guys want to do that? What about this? Well, that's not a postcard. <laughs> Oversized. It's a post postcard. Poster, yeah, okay. <laughs> Two-sided two poster. <laughs> well, um, I think, you know, in the origin of the issue, uh, we, were, we were struck by this, this sort of resurgence of drawing in, at SciArc, but then at other schools as well, where there was this sudden... Um, a line drawing. Line drawing, you know, orthographic projections, and also primitive geometries, so circles squares, that these things were sort of recurring. And, um, and there were people who were just focusing on that as sort of the drawing was the end in and of itself. And Cameron's project just sort of jumped out as something that was not only about specific representational techniques, but it was transforming precedent just exactly in the way that we've been talking about, where you know the new becomes um, simply through messing with the rules of the game that you're given, that creates this other version of a known historical artifact. Um, and the fact that it happens in this, you, you should all watch the animation if you haven't already, because he talks about it as liquefying the building. And so to me, it just seemed like almost a sort of, um, a, not a, not a joke, but like it was funny in a way because it's taking this sort of, like this sort of aesthetic uh -oh. of the like the Delizian flow, yeah. but making it so rigorous and so much about actual, you know, sort of analysis of this precedent, not just for the sake of 
things being animate. Right. I mean, this is obviously just the vehicle, but the return back to primitive geometries, I mean, in my head, you can't, there's no other, uh, it's very evident to me, but there's no other place to go. You can only be, you know, indeterminate. And that's why the reaction to Greg and the kind of suppleness of the spline that, like, is both a unified but a localized kind of thing. I don't actually believe that architecture needs to be so infinitely modulated. Um, I don't actually think... And the sound, this is the most kind of conservative thing I'm going to probably say all night, <laughs> is that even though the technology can afford us the ability to computationally get to, through the calculus, very, very supple curves, I don't think architecture actually requires it. Mm -hmm. um, and that the return both to primitive geometries that are congruent, identical, not differentiated, mm -hmm. um, but rather the sort of piecewise continuity and composition of the whole, um, whose liquidity actually is in the reconfiguration of discrete parts, not in the, the oosiness of any one particular curve, yeah. is it's a different kind of um, fold, if you will, or a different kind of folding rather than the literal, the right. literalness of Which is sort of oosiness. funny. I guess it's funny. I don't know. <laughs> Why do you think it's funny? Because it's, it's poking fun at, at the other kind of oosiness that we know. Okay. I meant more than poke, poke fun. I, know, I meant I know, to be no, like, this is the real yeah, oosiness. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. an intellectual oosiness, not just a literal oosiness, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. I think that for many years in the field of architecture, we made very good architects and very bad historians. And I think that the type of work, however, that is represented in this text starts to indicate another level of historiography that is a little bit, shall we say, better than how many historians in the field of history are working. And that is because of its ability to move across these, you know, as you're describing Cameron's, um, Cameron's work, the ability to move across all of these kind of various formats, or in the case of this um, uh, sense of the historian as a person, you know, as Foucault described, the historian was su supposedly somebody who went back and verified the pastness of the past through, you know, this, this, this kind of story, if you will, in reconstructing, in, in, in a kind of job of reconstructing. And one of the things that I have found extremely liberating about architects and their bad, and their bad history is their ability to treat history outwardly as narrative, as fiction, as a set of stories, as a construction, as a kind of instrumentalized geometry or whatever the case may be. And I think ultimately for me what's interesting about this work is that I think that it would be very, very fun to take this issue to a, uh, a, a conference of uh, historians and see what they make. I'm not sure if you were arguing for a type of uh, the authority of the of the historian over the process of authentication, which I would uh, resist also. So I'm just raising the question we're of looking, the political. We're, you know, we're looking so. at you because there's a sense I think of a purposeful mis, you know, appropriation. 
Uh, we believe that we cannot really use these uh, uh, principles that we, we learn from the avant-garde uh, that have to do with uh, rejecting completely the, the, the past and rejecting completely the current conditions in order to offer a new order of things because what happened then is that very quickly absorbed and, then, and, and therefore it's completely banalized, it's, I don't know how to say it, decaffeinated, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work any longer. No? So this is why we really reject. Is there anybody the sitting out there who would like to challenge any of these people? Who <laughs> challenge anybody yes. but me? Oh. <laughs> it's not my issue. I just think I'm able to. I wonder if you guys are, in a way, looking at architecture now as a menu and as a way of selecting stuff or things to look at instead of actually having time. And by saying you're ancient, I think you've taken away this issue of the before and the after. I think there's no before and after. There's what, what you're dealing with now. So I wonder if time is even an issue to talk about or history or research. Maybe it's only about boarding. The entire issue is about let's board more stuff. I would say that um, time is, is definitely an important issue. And um, that there is this collapse that, that you're touching it like new ancients implies this collapse, right? So you can have a sort of simultaneity. But to me, it's incredibly important to know what time the thing came from. So it's not, it's not a purely formalist sampling of elements, right? It's not sort of just a toolkit. You have to know where the tool came from and what all of its ideological implications are when you use it. Uh, so that you're, that's the whole point of it being tethered to a discipline, is that you bring the sort of intellectual baggage of that thing with it, and that's why it's deepening the process and not just furthering a kind of, um, I don't know, I guess the, the same kind of superficial <laughs> production that I think we're resisting. Um, but I think, but Jorge, you know, wrote specifically about time, so maybe you want to take that on. Um, well, um, actually, I want to uh, take on this question of, uh, of hoarding or of picking, which I think is really, really important because I, in relationship to how to how to how to sort of make something, um, this question of choice I think is is really important. You know, what you what you choose to work on. Uh, is very important um, because it's also a sort of you know telegraphing what you think the future uh, can't exist without you know like you can't imagine that you you know the, the future might not have that thing that you're going to choose to to work on because in working on it you're going to in a sense give it give it life and um, sort of keep it relevant so uh, for me, that, that that is a way of sort of um, it's a it's it's a way of relating to culture, I, and and I guess the only way I can explain to that is through the analogy of the teddy bear, you know, which is you know when a child, you know, or like, you know, children pick teddy bears, you know, there's like you go into a store and there's like thousands of teddy bears, right, and then they say that one. <laughs> right, and you're just like amazed, you know, why that one? And, and uh, that one must have that one. And then once they pick it, I mean, it's your life is over, you know. They, <laughs> they like, lose that thing, you are dead meat, you know, like yeah, they'll cry, they'll like go nuts, right? They'll, 
And, 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 um, Jorge, by the way, it's not just children that do that. Like, <laughs> we're all subject to those kinds of yeah. market forces. Exactly. Right. exactly. So, and, so, and, and so what, you know, for me, I became really interested. Why do children do that? You know, so, you know, apparently they do that because it's a way for them to understand the real. You know, that, that they have a very difficult sense figuring out what's inside and outside. And so... They'll pick it, and then they're waiting for confirmation from the parents. So if you as a parent say, uh, and they say, you know, we're not going to leave the house until we find my teddy bear. And you say, no, no, we're going to leave. You know, forget your, your, you know, your fetishism, you know. <laughs> uh, they won't have a sense of what the real is. They need you to say, yes, that object is yours, right? So um, Winnicott referred to that as the first not-me creation. You know, that, that it's something you, you know, the child creates that teddy bear, but it's not, he didn't make it, it's confirmed socially. So I think that this is where disciplinary questions come in. Like when we make the choice, you know, of working on whatever copy or on Edgerton or whatever, it, it sort of, it's, um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a question we're asking, uh, like, culture to say, is it relevant? Is it real? You know, is this, is Borromini real? Is it necessary? Can we live without it? You know, can we, can we imagine the future without it? I mean, what would happen if Borromini would go away? You know, San Quattro, you know, San Carlo, gone, you know, like, I would, I would cry, but, but a lot, you know, so that's where, but most people wouldn't, you know, so, Anyways, I'm sorry to go on a tangent. Yeah. I think Borromini could go away, but there would still be linear and radially planned buildings. I mean, fundamentally, I believe that's true. I think that the, in response to the hoarding thing, it's not so much that hoarding precedent and, and amassing stuff, he sort of is accusing us of the, ho of the gathering of stuff. Well, but the hoarding thing, I think, is a really good question because of this idea of the archive it's now sort of overtaking the idea of the museum, of, the, of keeping everything, right. because we aren't going to make hierarchical decisions about what to collect. We're going to keep all of it. Right. But then we don't even know how to burrow into it to do the research. So I want to hear a little bit of you guys talk a little bit about postmodernism and how this is different, um, and how one might avoid the pitfalls of postmodernism in this sort of new history that returns thinking about history in the context. This is all you. Okay. Go for it. We've had this discussion many times. Happily. Go for it. Um, I think there's m many differences, but also a lot of, clearly indebted to a lot of issues that were raised in postmodernism too. And I mean, I think the biggest difference is the change in context. The fact that this is happening uh, so many decades later, and the, the way that the discipline has been shaped in the, in the intervening decades. So I think that, um, you know, when postmodernism happened, it was a reaction both to high modernism um, in a way that, or it was a reaction to high modernism in a way that was sort of alternately nostalgic for a period before then and oppositional. Um, and both of those set up this, this binary contrast between old and new. And so the work that was produced in terms of design, I think, um, often was playing off of that kind of dialectical flipping, right, and double coding. Um, and like we were talking about earlier, um, in terms of design, this is much more about creating the third thing 
that starts to um, avoid that and actually confuse or fictionalize the past. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's in terms of this sort of the, the, the relationship of the old and the new, but then um, in terms of the subject, I think we also touched on that earlier, how you know, after the effect of Deleuze, um, there was this greater interest in a kind of experiential, affective, atmospheric uh, approach to architecture and also an obsession with techniques and materiality and fabrication. So the work in this issue is not, for the most part, coming directly out of that, but I think it had a huge effect on the way that we think about um, subjects relating to objects in architecture. So we don't expect to have the same kind of reader who's looking for you know, a kind of textual quotation, that, that very rational form of legibility that's so much of postmodernism depended on. And instead, the work is really playing off of you know, perception and experience. Um, you know, the, the work of First Office, for example, who are based in Los Angeles, who are uh, Anna Niemark and Andrea Atwood are in this issue. I think they do really interesting things with that. Um, so I think that there's, there's a different ambition. It's not about opposition anymore or nostalgia. And there's also a different methodology where it's, it's, it's sort of not a binary and it's playing more with um, perception that's targeting a subject that's not reading quotations, reading history. I mean, just to be down with that a little bit, yeah. I mean, isn't it nostalgic for a time when... I, I think it's kind of yeah. nostalgic. And, I, and I, I think it's part of the game. Absolutely. I think but that's what I was trying to say, that, you know, nostalgic in a way uh, that could be interesting. I mean, like, but nostalgic about what? I'm nostalgic about the history, about history, you know, about past. You know, past is important, and, you know, there was a time it was important, it's not there anymore. We've been looking at uh, technology for a long time, let's check something different, and there was these things, and, you know, they're ancient. I don't know, but nostalgic, uh, in a way, not necessarily nostalgic to say, like, we're going to get our validation in the past, because that was the real thing. That's, that's the kind of nostalgia that is played out <coughs> in a way that just to kind of shape a little bit. Yeah. I think the project is an expansion of postmodernism rather than an other thing. I think it's so close in a lot of the operations we're managing with. But I think in that sense we've been able to take and push it a little bit further, not getting caught in kind of semiological games and the irony and, you know, irony in the use of quotations that I yeah. don't seem to actually trigger the whole thing, but actually push in other, other kind of games that not necessarily are so... Right now they seem kind of silly in a way, like jokes that you're getting. I, I think it's a highly nostalgic operation. And when I was talking about um, hipsters, I was like, kind of, seriously, uh, that's the point. Like, hipsters are nostalgic, but not because they cannot live without the past, but because the nostalgia is what leads you to actually discover the little thing that becomes your world for a I think that there probably could be a sort of hipster artisanal quality to many of these things. <laughs> oh. um, and, uh, and, and that, I, you know, I mean, it, it's not unfair to the sun. I mean, in the sense that, like, you know, if Kipnis is going around saying, oh, we're all sort of practicing our genre and we're in our niche, you know, and, you know, therefore that there's a representation of a field of, you know, of some of these genres, right? You know, and we happen to be all kind of playing a similar beat, that doesn't mean that we're all playing the same kind of harmonies or, or whatever the case may be um, in that analogy. Uh, but I think that, that 
the, the setup for me, in my mind, for the postmodernist way of trying to make this reconciliation, if you will, is um, located very well in Colin Rowe's distinction between the morale word and the physique flesh. And the separation, then, between the morale word and the physique flesh colored a perception of postmodernism that was also similarly separated between a physique flesh and then, therefore, a morale word that was not maybe necessarily ideological but could be ideological based on its semantic distinctions and, and its, its uh, associations with a kind of linguistic uh, um, or rhetorical, as, as, as you're calling it, um, uh, set of signifiers. And I think that what's interesting about what people are doing now, or at least the kind of group of people uh, who are, are working now, is um, that the adherence to the signifier is not as strong, but there is also a, if you will, a kind of reparation of those two terms, a kind of bringing back together those two terms. I mean, let, let, if you can do a child development uh, analogy, I, I guess I can do <laughs> So I wouldn't say it was personal as much as like, okay, if we're going to do Winnicott, we're going to do Winnicott, um, uh, which is, you know, there's a perception that people who are born in the 1960s have that everything that occurred after the 1960s, after they were born, is in color. And everything that occurred before they were born is in black and white, right? You know, because all your parents' pictures, da da da. You know, all the pictures, your older brother and other, those are all black and white. You're born, ta, there's color, and um, and that kind of perceptual miscue of 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 the world is, I think, what we are currently carrying around about postmodernism. Because I think that our understanding of postmodernism is, and excuse the, the, the reversal of these terms, I think our understanding of postmodernism in that way is very black and white. And I think if we went back over the record of most of postmodernism, what we would find is we would find very interesting and curious tensions between the morale word and the physique flesh. And I think that this is further extrapolating on those, and in fact going back before the separation of the physique flesh and the morale word, and finding in those prior examples as well very curious kinds of tensions between them that don't necessarily always have to also carry with them the burden of signification. Sometimes they do, as in Parsa's or in the discussion by Zeynep or in the discussion by Jason Payne. Other times they're very quick to say, this is not the point of interest is whether or not these things have that signification. And I think that, so therefore, the answer to your question is just simply yes. <laughs> yes what? Yes what? Um, <laughs> and then I want to add something, what? and I didn't get a chance to, to, to fit this in. But um, <clears throat> Cynthia once told us that nobody has ever sent her back a postcard. Ever? You've oh. never received a postcard back? No, that's actually not true. You have received a postcard. After I gave the talk at SciArc, I got two postcards. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in 30 issues. Uh, yeah. Wow. 
Wait, don't I don't think postcards necessarily travel anymore. No one wants to go buy a stamp. <laughs> I sent Dora, uh, I wanted to send Dora a postcard from Spain just this summer, and I took a picture of it and emailed it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really low. Wait, Dora, are you saying we're not in danger of um, um, an architecture that has these kinds of sensibilities being a mannered version of the classical. That's, I mean, that's what I think Noam is fearing a little bit, but you're saying we have enough... We, we, you're, what does your answer yes mean? That yes, there is a postmodernist element, and no, there is, you know, I mean, and, and, and yet it's, it's, it's not fearful, I should say. Right. Of, of, but he's of worried more about the thing, not the sensibility, right? Mm -hmm. You're more worried about the outcome of the architecture being mannered classical, or like... She's yeah, saying, what's so wrong with postmodern? I mean, I turn it back to you. What's, what's so damn wrong? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I'm just wondering how we learn from postmodernism, what we consider the mistakes to have been, and how uh, we um, move forward in the context of that uh, in that discourse. Yeah, and I would say that what we learn is we learn that the the intensity of the bifurcation is not itself productive. Right, you know, just as the bifurcation between <coughs> old and new is not itself productive, right? That instead it's this creation of these kinds of frames that are going to lead to a much more productive sense of discourse about any of it, uh, uh, as, as opposed to you know, a more narrowed sense in the, in mm -hmm. the mannerist. Yeah, but one more, if I can add something. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think if there's one value to the discussion on history, it's in fact to question labels like postmodernism. That on the one hand, it costs uh, the field, the, the um, the ability to look back, because it was blocked by the fear of it. But secondly, uh, because I was thinking, who exactly would you refer to as postmodernist? <laughs> because in fact, it's a label that Jenks uh, coined, and that group, uh, a number of people, none of which would identify with the issue, or that actually describes anyone's agenda. Right. Um, so if, if there's one value of basically uh, dealing with, uh, with history, is in fact to kind of uh, completely unpack that issue, as opposed to reviving whatever that may have been. Yeah, but that's a serious uh, answer to kind of uh, any other thing, so uh, we should. Write it in a postcard. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, say, by article I discussed, for instance, the difficult whole inventory. But uh, it's not dealing with, uh, in any way whatsoever, in fact, I wouldn't connect complex and contradiction in any way whatsoever to whatever Jenks uh, constructed himself. In fact, I think it's a category that didn't allow for us to look at somebody, uh, a number of people's uh, work, but also uh, it, it blocked history from being accessed. Yeah, I mean, if you accept the basic tenet of that there was a postmodernism, right, then you accept the idea that the, that periodization is something that is useful or can be somehow bracketing a time, you know, a, a time or a sensibility. And I mean, you know, I. Maybe we're more Habermasian now or something, but you know, this is a kind of refusal, I think, on all of our parts necessarily to say that you know that it could be bracketed so neatly, nicely, or even have a kind of umbrella or framework. Okay, we'll have one last question. Hi, uh, my question is um, I see this coming back, and I'm very, very happy about this coming back of history and, and theory because I'm doing a PhD on history. Uh, and my teacher was killing me because of this. But what I see also is that, um, also in the Binao and in my 
schools in Italy, etc., I see a kind of, and don't, don't get me wrong, a kind of um, snobbism and um, criticism. Uh, I mean, I, I really, I, I can't read most of those texts. They are not written to be understood by anyone. Uh, I don't know if, <laughs> most of the time, I'm generalizing this to be funny, but actually, you, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they are beautiful, artistic collage of images of old plants and, and then they mix with, with diagrams and, and they talk about the laws and then there is history that comes. I mean, it, it's a mess. And, and so the point, my question is, don't you think that here reality and the urgency of reality and maybe a revolution, I, I'm just saying to provoke, I mean, is missing here to make this history, I mean, history has a sense. History has to be used by um, by architecture to, to communicate with, with reality, with people, and maybe the scholars and maybe architecture is disconnected now from with, with reality. It's a question still. Yeah, I mean, I think that the sort of ghost haunting this issue is a question of autonomy, which I think is a real danger. Um, that in talking about the discipline, we risk. Um, talking about a discipline that's cut off from the rest of the world. Um, and I'd like to think that, that history is actually a kind of bridge between um, our, the history of our own specific discipline and then the histories that, are, um, that, are, that belong to specific places and people and that, that, that the buildings have always been there kind of in between those two worlds. Um, and I... But I think, I, I think it's a very legitimate concern, and I, um, I know that in sort of experimental preservation, there's work to, to bridge those two things, but I think it's also a big vacuum at the moment, and I, I would love to see more done. See, I mean, my interests are also more internal in the sense that I think that architecture itself has oftentimes been cut off from its own, from its own history. And um, that uh, I'm coming at this in a way that, you know, is also very much interested in the revival of architecture's own archive and these discussions of whoever, from the Tendenza all the way to Paranese. And um, the provocation that occurs within architectural culture when it becomes aware of its its own history is exactly this that it you know it, it becomes both sort of internalized and externalized um, and therefore a sense of kind of reinvestigating again the the disciplinary um, boundaries of of that but um, for me the ghost, is to furry. For sure. And to furry who came out saying that the project of history and the project of architecture are incompatible. Architecture is a commodity, it's a, you know, it's a it's 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 an instrument of, you know, of 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 capital and, you know, history and they, they don't even belong, you know, so to speak, in the same room. 
The re-embrace, if you will, of history also therefore requires an intellectual project for architecture to have to reconcile its supposed ideological separations from history. So the question that you're asking, I think, is not a possible question for many, many years, and I appreciate the opportunity that we have at this point in time that allows the probability of the question, let alone experimental preservation or any of the other types of work that, that, are, uh, that are engaged in, you know, uh, across this table. And on the note of allowing for possibilities. Oh, wait, I, I want to say, wait, 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 wait. I want to say thank you, Cynthia, and I want to say thank you, Luke. Yes, very, Luke is very the... much for, for uh, giving us this opportunity for this voice. And I also want to do a little shout out to Iman. Is she still here? Where did she go? She's who, here. Who, uh, who, who made, who's responsible for all of animations and drawings. Go ahead. Yes. Okay, so allowing for possibility, uh, <laughs> it's possible for you all to now leave. <laughs> and buy books. <laughs>